20 Schemes is the church planting ministry of Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland and Redeemer Fellowship Church in Bardstown, Kentucky. With these conversations, we're trying to expose some of the issues we experience in our ministries. We hope that with honest and frank conversations, we can begin to open up on some of the hard realities of church planting and revitalisation in schemes and council estates around the UK. In fact, even around the world. In this spirit, these conversations will be published completely uncut. I'm Mes McConnell, and this is the 20 Schemes podcast. Here with Andy Prime, the pastor of it's Grace Grace Mount Community Church. Grace Mount Community Church, GCC. I'm, I'm, I'm smiling and you're smiling because <laughs> you're thinking, what's he going to say? And I'm thinking, should I be naughty or should I behave myself? We know the answer. So let me behave myself. So, Andy, you've been uh, with 20 Schemes family years? Since summer 2014. Wow. So this is going to be your fourth year. Yeah. And before that, you were the great white hope <laughs> of Scottish evangelicalism at Charlotte Chapel. I was at Charlotte Chapel. Um, and um, I had a story about you once. Go on then. Tell me if this is true. Yeah. That you were put forward for young Scottish preacher of the year or something. And then you wrote to the people and said, sticky up your jacks, it's, <laughs> it's unbiblical. But obviously in yeah. more polite language. It was at, I was at Oak Hill College. My, the guy that ran the preaching class sent me an email, I think as a test. I think he'd got, it was like Premier Radio or something. Young preaching prospect of, I don't know what it was. I think he sent it to me as a test to say, are you going to be arrogant enough to submit yourself? And it was something you had to turn up to this gig with a 10-minute sermon and you had to preach it and then other people would preach it and it would be basically an X factor for preaching. So yeah, I kind of wrote a complaint letter saying... Did they respond? No. Nice. So, Oak Hill. Oak Hill's an interesting place. So, Mm -hmm. how many guys there? How many in your year? Uh, When I was there, uh, it probably would have been maybe just over 100 people in all three years. So maybe, I think my year was maybe 40, 50. What percentage of them were called Cuthbert or <laughs> Horatio or something. Yeah, there was, there was a large proportion of very well-spoken... And did they wear coloured jeans? Red jeans is lots always of, a giveaway. Lots of chinos, lots of tweed. Nice. Yeah. Would you say you're middle class? Yeah. So this is interesting because I get a lot of pushback and I've asked all my guests so far this question. Um, what is middle class and why would you say you are it? I would say middle class largely based on the family I was born into in terms of their standard of living, uh, their uh, homeowner, um, dad with a decent job, um, well-educated, and so opportunities, prospects. um, Yeah, it was just the world I lived in. So working class then because, you know... Am I middle class? You are now. So, but, but you're more middle class than me at the moment. I am actually. Yeah, but I don't eat hummus. Yeah, I eat hummus. Do you? Yeah. Um, but in all seriousness, we'll come back to what class yeah, yeah. I am because uh, I'm not middle class, but my children are. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when we use the terms, we're not using them in the pejorative sense, right? We're not like trying to denigrate. I'm just trying to yeah, yeah. help people understand. Um, What's my question going to be? Help me out. Yeah, so, like, you know, um, 80s, in the 80s, right to buy and all that, a lot, of, a lot of, like, people I know from council estates and that bought their own houses, so, you know, and a lot of council estate guys I know probably earn more money than you. Yeah. Me. And so, we're not saying owning your own home or having a few quid makes you middle or working class, so what are we saying? Um, I think in some, in some sense this is a sense of identity in terms of um, I think for me growing up middle class it was probably a sense of um, I'm speaking for me personally naivety about the struggles of having to graft and a kind of sense of I don't know anything other than life being pretty comfortable. And so I think 
for me, the kind of the, the association of being middle class for me was probably something I was unaware of growing up because I was naive to the stresses of someone who's had to come from maybe a more so working Ed, class. You're an Edinburgh background. boy, right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and um, you'll 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 have heard of Nidri growing up. Yeah, yeah. And the only the only way I knew Nidri was Nidri Naysocks. It was like a slight on people who um, couldn't afford to wear socks, and so you were like, that's, that's the only awareness I had of Nidri growing up. And so that's what your a view of Nidri would have Correct. been like, what? So it would have been looking down on the people that were less well Would you have consciously me. done that? Um, down on no, I don't think consciously, certainly not when I was a kid, probably more so as I was growing up through high school. So I went to high school in Ox Gangs, which is a kind of, it would be a housing scheme in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my mum and dad were very deliberate in sending me there. But I think as I was at Ox Gangs, you started to see the difference between someone who come from a middle class background and someone who come from a working class background as those kind of things clashed. All right, so let's let's jump just just just, just jump along a bit. So yeah. you like, you know, you 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 decide at some point you're going to become a minister. Um and I won't ask the obvious question or even talk about yeah, yeah. the obvious person. Yeah. But become you're going to become a minister and um you obviously, you know, you go to Oak Hall for some reason, I don't know. Oak Hill. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Oak, Oak Hall. Hall. Oak Hall's the holidays where people go to get hitched if they're single. It's the same type of people, yeah, right? Yeah. Oak Hill, Oak Hall, whatever. Uh, Oak Hill, is it called? Oak, Oak Hill. Hill. Uh, and, you know, study with the Ruperts. And I'm going to get into big trouble for this, but I don't mind. Um, you know, on this path to whatever you're going to do, the middle class path, you come back. You get a job as an assistant or something at Shard yeah. Chapel. Big, well-established Baptist church in the city. Great yeah. pedigree, you know, known as a preaching centre. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're obviously on a progression from that with um, aspirations to becoming a senior guy, mm-hmm. if not there, somewhere else, I, I assume. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, you know, then 20 Schemes is born. What was your first... Impressions when you heard of twenty schemes. So you didn't jump on board straight away, but did you have any impression of twenty schemes, first, negative or positive? First time I heard of twenty schemes was attended some event at Crubbers Christian Centre right. in town. You and Shabba were speaking, and I think it was the kind of the Scottish launch of twenty schemes. And I was there, and I must have been—I don't know if I was dating or married to Sarah at the time—but she was obviously doing the stuff in Grace Mount mm-hmm. in the housing scheme. I was aware of it, but I hadn't experienced it really. And I think at that point I thought that would be great for Sarah to get involved in. I think I was free for the first time being pointed to the the kind of need, the spiritual need within my own city, particularly in the housing schemes. But it still was, it was over there. Because mm-hmm. my, my mindset was very much, I'm settled at Charlotte Chapel in this kind of ministry. This is like... Charlotte was hand in glove for me. It was perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just it was my gifts were used. I can't think. Well, I was from that church. I was from that background. I knew the kind of student ministry, youth and children's thing, and it was like, yeah, it felt natural. It felt like this was the progression. This is where I was going. And so, obviously, and, just jumping around a bit. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, Sarah wasn't like. Sarah's pull was to the schemes. Yeah. Um, and then Geezer called Tim Challenge writes an article, which is yeah. pretty formative, right? Yeah. He comes over to visit the schemes. Yeah. See, Sarah is quite taken, actually, by what we're trying to do. Writes this article. Um, and then you're quite convicted through the article. Maybe we talked yeah. about it. Yeah. Like, the, the progression was we got married. Sarah moved into my flat in the centre of town. And she got homesick for Grace Mount after about two seconds. So we moved back into... She moved back, I moved into Grace Mount. Mm-hmm. And I guess I started being confronted day to day with a need, a, a deprivation, a poverty in my own city that I didn't know existed growing up. And so I guess it was an ongoing consciousness of a world outside of my knowledge of Edinburgh and my kind of Charlotte Chapel ministry. And it was obvious the two were massively disconnected. Um, and so Sarah started 
grown a bit uneasy kind of coming to Charlotte, doing the gig in Gracemont and knowing that these two were never going to meet. And so Tim came, he wrote the blog, and I remember sitting in my house reading it and thinking, would he have written that differently if he knew Sarah was married to a pastor? Like, Because he was kind of, it was the call, who's going to go and join her, who's going to plant a church here? Um, and Tim didn't have a clue. Sarah was a bit more clued in, and so she like just sent me walking around Gracemont with Romans 10, asking the four rhetorical questions. And at that point, when you kind of, they all come back saying they the can't. Four rhetorical questions. In Romans 10, just in terms of that progression of how, how are they going to how are they going to hear the gospel unless someone is sent mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff and just um, that starts building on me feeling the weight and the pressure of a gospel need within my own city. I was reading McShane's memoirs at the time, and he talks about Edinburgh in terms of uh, going on uh, kind of visitation with a guy called Andrew Bonner, mm-hmm. and McShane records his diaries going through Edinburgh, kind of seeing some of the most miserable habitations he's ever ever beheld and kind of seeing in, like masses of people and he talks about them being unfri- unvisited by friend or minister. No man careth for our souls is written over every forehead. And that kind of progression of things put the gospel needs kind of on my conscience in Gracemount. And it wasn't so much, um, could we do this? it kind of became, if we don't, who else will? And so at that point, 20 schemes stopped being, oh, they might help my missus out. And it started becoming, actually, maybe 20 schemes is going to serve us to plant a church in Gracemont. And so you're there, you're at that, I mean, you're at a big church. Yeah. Remember, you know, yeah, yeah. 900 members or whatever it is. Um, I don't know. I think 500, 600, yeah. yeah. Um, and then... Um, you know, you're on this progression. Obviously, you're sharing this with colleagues or yeah. family members. <clears throat> What's the takeaway? Because um, to leave that, to come to a council estate, with what at the time, four years ago, we're only five years old, 20 schemes. Yeah. At the time, still yeah. people were wondering if we were a gimmick. Am I a nut job? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I am a nut job, yeah. but am yeah. I the sort of nut job that you should be leaving a career path to come and... Yeah, try this new thing, which was which which was met with lots of suspicion. So, what what, yeah. what, what was the what some um, of the pushback, if any? Maybe everybody went, "No, go for it, son." But yeah, I mean, there's, there's pushback in me because I'm, I am, I was uh, hugely arrogant, kind of proud, like the. It's quite easy to like the position and like the prestige that comes with a big church like that, and the kind of being in the pulpit and being recognised, and you get invited to things and. Um, and so my kind of sinful heart struggled with that but at the same time I can take the church planting thing and say be proud about that and say look what I walked away from and kind of all that but there was pushback from others like Sarah Sarah got frustrated by a lot of people that would come up to her and say I can't believe you're taking Andrew away from here and um, you know can you not just bust the Gracemount kids into Charlotte Chapel and uh, she found that really hard um, I know you got some I got lots of pushback. Hate mail. Um, I think my dad struggled. I'd kind of been talking to Paul about committing longer term to Charlotte. Just to understand, Paul Reese is the pastor. Yeah, a good friend. Good support for 20 man. schemes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I um, was talking to him about um, committing longer term at Charlotte Chapel, which I felt would have been a great use of my time. It wouldn't have been a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but was feeling like anyone could do the Charlotte gig. Anyone coming out of Oak Hill would walk into Charlotte and could carry on what I was doing. And there was no one who was going to do the Grace Month thing. And especially given that Sarah was my wife. And so, yeah, my dad struggled. He was an elder at Charlotte. Maybe struggles too hard, a word. But um, dad obviously loved Charlotte Chapel. He thought I was a good fit. He thought I was mm-hmm. good in terms of um, a compliment to Paul Reese mm-hmm. and Liam Garvey who were there. Um, and so valued my dad's honesty in terms of... Liam Garvey, if you're stay. watching this, plant a church, son. Get on with it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a wrestle. We ended up just meeting my granddad. My granddad said, stop seeking advice from people. You know, the kind of multitude of counsellors can just confuse. And so he just said, you need to pray you and Sarah would come to a unity on it. And mm-hmm. so I met with you a bunch of times. You try to persuade me or tell me all the reasons why we shouldn't do it in terms of the cost and... 
um, that it's going to be hard and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it came to the point where it would have been wrong for us not to do. Okay, and then and, and you've come. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and, and you've heard me talk over the years, obviously, I have... People say I've got a chip on my shoulder. We both know I have it. Yeah. A chippy. Poker chips. Um, yeah. And uh, I always say I've got a chippy on my shoulder and gravy in my pockets. <laughs> so don't you worry about it. But does it make what, we're, what we've been saying about this huge divide between yeah. the middle class, the working and non-working class? I mean, there's a bit of a misnomer now to say working class in lots of our communities. Yeah, yeah. There are, you know, my dad's working class builders, the, the old manufacturing, the old miners. These jobs have, uh, yeah. are, are largely going. So there's a sort of, Working class now are sort of low-paid jobs, cleaners, etc., mm. stuff like that. And then there's the sort of whole huge raft of benefits class. Um, and and people often say to me, "Oh, you're, you're bringing division. You know, the, the division doesn't exist. It, it's it's not real." But you, as a cultural outsider, mm. who've come in, yeah. And I don't know what you thought about some of our talks in the past, but now I've experienced firsthand for yourself. What, would you say there is? Can you see that divide? What what should be in your experience culturally of, of mixing with us? Um, yeah, I think I think it goes both ways. I think um, there's a kind of a naive snobbery that can come, or paternalism that can come from the kind of middle class down, and then there's a kind of inverted snobbery. Um, yeah, that goes the other way, um, and I think it's probably easier to see the other side than to see ourselves in that. I mean, you see it out with Christian circles. You see it in the schemes. And so... But what was the big shock for you, culturally, coming in? Was the culture um, shock? Was there not culture shock? Some cultural adjustment? There was huge cultural adjustment. I don't know if it was shock. My wife was probably a shock absorber for that because she'd mm-hmm. been in it for so long. And yeah. so um, she helped me in that. I think I probably came in naively thinking... Um, superhero outsider come to save the day um i think um obviously not consciously no but so in grace matter there's a division even in my street so one side of my street is privately owned houses Mm -hmm. one side of the street is all kind of government housing Mm -hmm. and there is a kind of conscious divide and snobbery, invert snobbery, even between the two sides of the street. Same in Nidri. And so like even even the fact that the street slopes down from the privately owned houses to the social houses. So when it rains, it's the government houses that get flooded. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of like the whole world is against us, kind mm-hmm. of look at these snobs on the other side. And so that that's within the scheme. I think that's that is true within Christianity as well. So you just think you think we're a bunch of whiners? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> but I think I think rightfully so because I think there is, um, I think there has been a kind of paternalistic attitude from largely middle class churches. I think there's been a hesitation to trust people from working class backgrounds with resources or opportunities. I think largely when you see people from working class communities get saved they are the ones who have had to culturally adapt to the majority culture and you see that right yeah um i think you see it in you see cultural bias in the church against our particular demographic yeah i think i think you do i'm not suggesting it's purposeful in all cases yeah i i think i think often when you look at so when you look at either ministry or eldership the type of guys that get opportunities in elderships in largely middle-class churches are those who are successful in the business world. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of guys coming from more working-class backgrounds who are as godly, as gifted, yeah. but are probably overlooked. I've struggled in it. I've been a pastor for 20 years. Yeah. Highly educated. You call me middle-class now, right? But really, in, yeah, yeah. in terms, you know, yeah. I had opportunities that my dad, grandparents yeah. never had. Um, and struggled apart from this church and the church I planted in Brazil in the last 10 years but the first few churches I was in we were uh, run almost along the same lines a real struggle to get yeah. any acceptance even as a leader yeah. because I was the only non-professional doctor, lawyer, business owner 
you know, yeah. st stuff like that. There's and a real that, cultural blind spot there, I think. Yeah, and that's a battle for me as I lead the team now with guys from, come from middle-class backgrounds, into Grace Mount to kind of... Let me talk about plan. you and, and, and your team, because you have made some cock-ups, haven't you? Yeah, man. Yeah. And so, what, what are some of the cock-ups that you've made? I, mean, I don't <laughs> need to give away personal details of people, but just yeah, you, yeah. Is, what's, you know, where's some of the areas you think, ah, crap, actually, I think I've screwed the pooch on that one. Um, can we step back and go leadership first and then come to that? In you terms can of how do we've done leadership, go wherever right? you want, but so, you can tell us what you want, whatever you like. As you know, in terms of like, Planet Church, for the first couple of years, it's largely dictatorial, right? In terms A of... A benign dictatorship is what I call it. Yeah, and so, because you've got to, you've got to set the vision, you've got to... Can I just pause you there? Yeah, man. You to explain to me for the camera. Yeah. Because people often say to me, we're obviously, con we're, we're Baptist Congregationalists, right? Yeah. Uh, avowedly so. Yeah. And I have this debate with congregational friends who say, how can you be a benign dictator? You should be yeah. a Baptist congregational from the off. And I say, well, how do you plant? And they go, well, we won't plant a church unless we tend out a small team of elders yeah. and a group of people. And so from the off, the healthy model's there. And so would you just like to explain to those people how, while that's a beautiful dream for us, why that is not really a reality for us. Yeah, well, what, one, there wasn't a church willing to support us financially with people yeah. to do it. Um, and two, that would involve an entire group of cultural outsiders coming in and trying to create something which wouldn't have been helpful yeah. in our context. Yeah. And so, because... So, it, so you've just gone in on your Jack Jones... Yeah, with, so Sarah's been doing ministry for about a decade yeah. when we are looking to gather a team. And so some of her volunteers from various churches across Edinburgh are interested in Grace Mount, have a vested interest, and so start coming to meetings when we talk about we want to plant a church. Okay. And so we've got people from, some from Short Chapel, some from Chammers, some from Morningside Baptist, as it was then, some from Nidri have come along, and then some kind of people that have been saved from Grace Mount. Mm -hmm. And so um, Sarah and I are the kind of uniting point. People are coming because they know us. Mm -hmm. And so when we launched, we decided that we were going to launch with me acting as a single elder under the kind of authority of the Nidri eldership. Yeah, as so our you came into our eldership, didn't you? Yeah. After and so, a year or so. So I'm functioning as an elder at Nidri to plant a, grace in, uh, mm -hmm. plant a church in Gracemount. Now, there probably would, there was men in our group, our planting team, that we could have appointed as elders from mm -hmm. the first day. However, because we were coming from four different churches, the guys in the, who were going to become the church hadn't seen the men in the group function as a godly Christian man who was teaching the word mm -hmm. in the context of a local church. And so, although I could have appointed one or two guys, the rest of the members could have said, I don't know if he's godly. I don't know if I trust him to teach my family, to shepherd us, to protect us from false teaching, or whatever. And it could have been a divisive thing in our in our situation because we weren't coming from one sending church. And so we said we're going to take six months to a year. We'll operate unhealthy in terms of single eldership for the first while. The nine dictator. Correct. Whilst we observe the other men in the church, um, character give them opportunities to lead Bible studies. Can I ask services? a clarifying question? Just because yeah. I know there'll be a lot of middle-class guys who are in your situation and yeah, yeah. They, they want to ask you a lot of questions. Yeah. I already know what the questions are going to be. And yeah. one of them is, these people that you drew in yeah. from out with, cultural outsiders we call them, yeah. um, Was it? A re did you make the, a requirement that they had to live in in order to be a part of the, the, the worshipping community? Just yeah. explain to people about that. Yeah, so we made it clear from the from the get-go that if you wanted to be involved in planting and being our core team, our launch team, uh, we didn't use core team, launch team for Gracemont Community Church, that you had to... Why didn't you use core team? We didn't use core team because um, we didn't want it to be that when we launched, any new people that came didn't feel like they were part of the original. And so rather than create this kind of distinction between those of us who've been there from the start and who are really serious about it and then periphery, okay. we wanted to talk about launch and then just becoming a member. So you've got these guys. One of the requirements was you need to move him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did everybody accept that? Um, yeah, predominantly. I think um, 
because they had already been involved in Gracemount and they, they knew the families that we were working with, they knew the kids, there was a genuine heart for the community. And what if people they said, were. no, we'd like then, to support you, but we really, we don't really want to move in? Then they just weren't part of the team. So we didn't really have that. There okay. wasn't There wasn't really someone who said, oh, we we're interested in coming, but we're not willing to move in. I think they knew so clearly that was what. Okay. Our kind of statement was. Sorry, I keep jumping in. That's all right. Just, just, I, know, so, I know what questions are being asked. Yeah, yeah. So then when it came to um, nominate elders, it was no longer a divisive thing, but people were just saying, Actually, yeah, this guy has been doing the job already. We're just recognizing for something he's doing rather than giving him a new job. And so just, I don't know, six weeks ago, we appointed the first elders of Grace Community Church just over a year into our church's life. And it was a unanimous vote. And so that's, um, I think, proving God's graciousness to us that it was the right thing to do and so great to have a kind of fully functioning eldership now so coming back to them kind of leadership cock-ups one of the challenges has been how you move from benign dictator in the early stages which is necessary in terms of setting the vision and the kind of ethos and uh, creating the culture to then handing over responsibility authority um and the temptation for me is because I'm a micromanager, control freak, that presumes I can do everything better than everyone else. Do you else. think that in order to be a good planter, you have to be a micromanaging control freak? Do you think they make the best planters? For our context, I'm thinking about just... You know. Get up and go off the start. Yeah, I no, think, no backup really. Yeah, I think I think if unless you've got that sense of calling, a complete kind of overwhelming sense of burden for the community, sense of vision and where you want to go. Yeah, I think I think that flows out of that. I think. Um, I don't know if it's the only way to go. Heavy shepherding. But, Is that a danger? Um, yeah, I think I think my particular challenge has been. Um, a couple of things one it's, it's easier and quicker to do things yourself than train someone else up I know and that. so yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a sacrifice in terms of time energy to so if I'm to prep a sermon it can take say it takes 15 hours for me to help someone else through that process it's way longer mm-hmm. um, and that, that creates not only the burden on you but you've got to kind of teach the members of the church that actually although we're not going to have the finished product week one to bear with the person and some people had to do that I mean I was hopeless when I started preaching mm-hmm. um, so that's been a challenge I think um, stepping back and allowing people to fail in order to give them an opportunity to learn I think um, especially with kind of cultural insider from the scheme you've helped me in this but in the early days when I came, I think I wanted to try and protect them from some of the mistakes they might make or from the implications of their choices. And and that is an absolute killer. Yeah. And you want to explain to people why? Because this is what middle class guys do and, and they, they mean well. Yeah. They want to, they, you see it as protecting. Yeah. You see it as helping a person grow. But explain to people why, why is that, why is that negative not allowing guys when you know you, you're watching the car crash and you, you see it plain, plain as day. This so you know it feels like loving. I'm just going to step in here and, and put yeah. a stop to this. Whereas I've said to you, unless they're not going to be seriously yeah, yeah. serious sin, step back, let it play out, and then you use it to help them grow. Yeah, I think it's it's a nice kind of um, it's a dream to think that everyone's going to learn from other people's mistakes, mm-hmm. but actually. Often it takes learning from our own mistakes. And if you don't allow someone to fall or see the consequences of a mm-hmm. particular decision or whatever, you never have the opportunity to then walk that through them and, and teach through that opportunity. I think for me, the challenge has been uh, if this thing crashes, although it may have been them that's crashed the car, it's going to come on my reputation because I'm the planter. Or, um, and that's a big... That's a big yeah. hat problem, right? Yeah, because the buck stops with me. You think, oh, people are therefore going to say, oh, man, he's like, he's mental. And it? the pressure magnified because 20 Schemes has got such a high profile as well, yeah. right? Yeah. And so 
that that's been hard for me to learn. Um, yeah, I think the the eldership has been really good for me in terms of um, sharing the burden of responsibility and allowing other guys to kind of share that weight of the kind of pastoral side, the teaching side of things. But then there is still the kind of everyday ministry things, which is very hard not to just kind of dominate or manipulate or I get your own off, way. I want to go off on another tangent. Yeah, man. Theological and doctrinal differences. Yeah. So there's, there's a, there's a, there is a real naivety out there, particularly in our circles. And what I mean by our circles is housing estate, where someone hears you're doing a, maybe a work in a council estate and, you know, every theological, every theological crackpot out there, you know, holding every sort of theological belief in, in the world, suddenly pitches up and turns up and they come from this church or that church, they come from Baptist churches, come from Presbyterian churches. Yeah. And, you know, let's all just love Jesus, yeah. love the poor, and we'll build a church together. Yeah. Um, what's been your experience of that? I, I think it's probably another mistake we made in terms of, I mean, we spent three years gathering a team of stuff before we launched the, the actual Sunday gathering of Graceman Community Three Church. years is a long time, right? Yeah. Well, for the middle class model. Yeah. And partly that was because I was still learning the kind of cross-cultural nature of what's going on, even though it was within my own city. I'm still trying to understand the culture that you've lived in, grown up in, and been ministering in, and has been foreign to me. So that took time. Um, and then to try and take the cultural outsiders that have joined our planting team through that as well. Um, partly it just takes time. If you're asking someone to move in and either find a rented property or have a mortgage or whatever, that takes time to build as well. But um, I think one of the things that we spent a lot of time on was talking about what is our polity going to be and right down to... What obviously, is our polity though? Look, guys ask me this yeah, question all the time. Yeah. Why are you so obsessed with nine marks and... <laughs> What the heck has polity got to do with planting churches and yeah. councillor church? Just get in there, tell them about Jesus and start this out. Why are you getting into polity in the early days of a church plant? Um, because you can't, you can't have a church without polity. In terms of how you're going to function once you have launched, in terms of what are going to be the things that protect the gospel as a community of believers. And so when it came to discussions like baptism, so I come from, I'm persuaded in terms of creedal baptism, come from a Baptist kind of upbringing. Amen. Yeah. And we were gathering a team. Young couple came to us. They actually had a house in Gracemount. Really good, gifted couple. Really tempting just to say, yeah, man, we'll, we'll take you straight away. Desperate for numbers. We, they would have been a great addition to our church. Um but the more we talked to them, they were coming from a Presbyterian background, mm -hmm. uh, kind of persuaded pedo-baptists. And we had a big discussion as a team to try and work out, well, what's, what's our polity going to be and how does our view of baptism impact how we're going to work as a church on a day-to-day -day basis? And actually, it was a whole kind of launch group um, became convinced that we needed a clarity on our position of baptism because that would have an impact on how we do evangelism. It's going to have an impact on how we do discipleship. It's going to have an impact on how we do church government governance. And so just your view on baptism is not just your view on baptism. It impacts how you do a whole lot of other things. So the issue of baptism in the scheme, largely our community is coming from a kind of nominal Catholicism, Pretty much everyone has been christened as a baby. And so when you talk about baptism as a baby, people aren't presuming Presbyterian kind of thoroughly thought through theological view on baptism. They are thinking a magic, Catholic. Magic water yep. makes my kids saved. Correct. Um, and so it's important for us to have a, a clear view and line on baptism as we seek to engage people and persuade them just because they've had their head wet as a baby mm -hmm. doesn't mean that their child is a And so that safe. caused Yeah. It, it I don't it caused some of our team to wrestle because they thought oh, surely we can surely can we can work through this. It caused some hurt in that 
couple because they were keen to be involved. Mm. Um, but I think long term for the health and kind of clarity of who are we as Christians in Gracemount, being Gracemount Community Church, I think that clarity has served us now in terms of how we do all these things. Um, but it's hard because it's hard to turn away a young couple with a house in the community um, from a planting team when you're desperate for people. Let me change the topic slightly. How yeah. long have we got, John? How long have we been going? We'll go a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, you know, you talked about spending some time here, trying to learn the culture, getting understand worldview. We, you haven't talked about that, but actually, worldview is probably the, the biggest factor that determines class, not what you wear, what you eat, and all that. Even though we joke about it. Yeah. Um, what's been? What was the biggest? Some of the biggest lessons you learned culturally, given the fact you lived a few miles down the road for most of your life, and have then come and observed. What you say is a different... What about some of the big cultural lessons that you've learned that I think, wow, didn't... Not that you weren't maybe aware of it, but maybe to the extent that when you really look at a culture. Uh, let me put it this way. I, I feel like I've... So a lot of people talk about what is sacrificed for ministry, right, in terms of, like, what they've had to give up, which I get... I feel like I've only gained coming to Gracemount in terms of, I think, what I've learned about the culture is a depth of kind of loyalty within families and friendships, um, an openness to um, to the, the people that you are Prox, like in in your like kind of local proximity. So I came from an apartment, like kind of flat apartment building, where I didn't know any of my neighbours. And if you met someone in the hallway, it was a it was a pain, and you just didn't talk to anyone. Whereas in the scheme, I think the sense of togetherness, the sense of loyalty, the sense of generosity. And people are outside the on the corner of the streets, sat in groups in their jimmies having a chat. Yeah, and so like, I th- I think. I learned, I've learned more about community from living in Gracemount than I've ever learned from a church. Mm. And so in that sense, I feel like I've only gained yeah. uh, in terms of the kind of cultural differences. Um, honesty. I mean, you talked about that with MSD in the previous podcast in terms of... Yeah, could you resonate lots, with that, what yeah, we were yeah, saying? Ter- I think... Because I look aggressive when we're talking, but... Yeah, but I think in terms of... Um, Knowing the shallow, pretentious, life is okay, yeah, yeah, not yeah. allowed to show weakness and um, presenting like everything's all right. So I kind of came from the, the model, probably in some ways from my kind of granddad's era and his kind of generation of pastors that in ministry you don't have genuine friendships, you can't have friendships within the church. Um that, that also, of. even when I was taught 20 years ago in the pulpit, I was taught you don't give personal examples of failings yeah. or doubts or yeah. fears. You say nothing. Yeah, and... It's baffled me. Yeah, and but I think that's what I was taught, sort of modeled to me, and probably what appealed to me in terms of my pride, protecting my reputation, not having to confess weakness. And so I think that that openness... And willingness to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. I think, has been something that's benefited my spiritual life and benefited my ministry. So I think the more I've opened up, admitted vulnerability, weakness, sin with our members from the pulpit and preaching, I think that's um, that's only benefited and added to my understanding of the gospel and who I am as a believer in Christ. And I think before I never would have, I would have thought strength is strength and weakness is weakness. Whereas I think now I'm beginning to realize that the gospel says weakness is strength and strength is weakness or supposed strength. And that's been a hard lesson to learn, but I think something I've learned. So we've got guys, we've got guys, I'm just going to swing around somewhere else now. I've got guys, middle-class guys, 
There are very, very few working class pastors like me. Yeah. Ian Williamson, for instance. Yeah. Um, you've got guys down in London, but um, a lot of guy, young men now, who contact me through Twitter Schemes, Church in Hard Places. Young middle class guys, like yourself, some of them, some a bit older as well, mm-hmm. in council estates around the UK with varying degrees of success. Most of them really struggling to reach um, the indigenous populace. And what I mean by the indigenous populace is generally white working class, you know, general Joes like yeah. like me. Some of them, some some of them will be good at reaching sort of immigrant communities. Um, some of them will sort of border council estates, but they'll get more middle class guys in. And a lot of the questions I'm getting is, can how can we, as middle class guys, be effective? We're not effective. We're feeling ineffective. We listen to you, Mayor's talk, and others, and we feel like, well, you know, condemned that we're not going to uh, uh, be able to to do this. What sort of Words of advice have you got enough? Because I know, without putting words in your mouth, you know, you have great skills, right? Uh, particularly in preaching, in, in teaching. But one of the areas which we worried about you coming in was in terms of evangelism. You're quite a reserved, yeah. quiet guy. You don't give much away. You know, what yeah. you've said you've learned is interesting because that's been a real cultural struggle. Yeah. And so we stuck a few nut jobs with you who, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Very new Christians, yeah, but you know, evangelize the hind legs of a donkey, right? Yeah, um, which I know, which I know you found found particularly helpful. But um, what's some advice you can give to some middle class guys out there on their own, thinking, what do I need to do? What do I, what, how, what do I need to change? How can um, you know we be more effective in ministries that God's called us to? Because I, I, I we talked about this before. I, Sometimes I'm, I'm listening to middle guys talk. I, I don't understand the questions because I don't understand the worldview. Yeah. I can't get inside the mind, but you can get inside the mind. And so if you could help these guys or give them some words of advice, you know, maybe that would encourage them. Yeah, I think. So, w- w- as you said, one of the things that you've done is deliberately create diversity within my church planting team. Yeah. Which has been important. And not just to think of that as useful in ministry, useful for the context. But in terms of, I think they've taught me more than I've taught them. And so I, I think I'm still getting there and I'm, I, and the recent cock-ups in terms of my leadership. That, you've had, and listen, let's be clear, you've had tension in that diversity. Yeah, correct. And so, Which I like, as you well know, I like yeah, that tension. Yeah, and part of those struggles, as a middle-class guy working with people from a working-class background, has been those innate kind of... Um, Differences and paternalism kind of chip on the shoulder and Mm. that continues within the church. And so um, when Peter says in 1 Peter 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. I think that's been one of the most important things I've had to learn in terms of um, if if you go in kind of all domineering and trying to lord it over people just because you feel like you've got some innate sense of privilege or position just because you've come from theological training and they've not that that's disastrous and i think i've fallen into that um you know in that same passage in 1 peter 5 it's deliberate that peter has to say do not lord it over people because it's a temptation in any leader but i think particularly from my kind of maybe subconscious maybe conscious sense of privilege and position from where i've come from i think that's crippled the kind of people that you've put with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think presuming that things that cause you to flourish will help them flourish. So when you know, whether it's Bible college or an internship in a church I did in London, just because I was given a book by someone, therefore my ministry should look like giving books to others who maybe aren't from a reading culture whereas that's just been everything I've known, or whether it's my style of organising my week and structurising and kind of motivating. And, and preaching, right? Even yeah. Um, and so imposing what works for me and presuming that's going to be a one-size-fits-all for everyone else. I think the flip side is also true in terms of um, guarding against 
indigeneity being a badge for um well, making an angle out of it right yeah or just saying that this this means that i'm definitely going to have a position of leadership in this church because i'm a cultural insider mm-hmm. i think that's something we've had to um be careful in terms of expectations and how we um talk about that but how do you encourage these guys to reach the populace if they're just having no success I mean, those who are planting, those who want to plant, those who currently are planting but are really struggling. I mean, I think f- for us the most important thing has been moving there, living in, and that instantly creates relationships. I think without that, we would have nothing. Teams? Team would be vital. What but about I'd... teams? People say to me, it's all right for you. You get millions of pounds from America. You can afford to set up teams and I always laugh and say no I don't and no one ever yeah. believes me but what, what do you say to the guy who's got no money bearing in mind when I started five years ago we had 500 quid in the bank <laughs> and no money but yeah so, yeah it's how we benefited massively from 20 schemes in terms of that partnership and you guys being able to support us with um, the diversity that we would have lacked if it was just Sarah and I mm-hmm. And so I would definitely say that if you can, I think what I would first say is to middle-class affluent churches to be backing guys in your city, in your locale, who are trying to reach into the deprived areas of our of your own city. And I would say um, be humble enough to go and listen to them. Don't go with an agenda to impose but go taking a lead from the guy who's doing it on the ground. I would say go with a long-term attitude, seeking to invest for the long haul, not just with a kind of three-year business plan where they'll be independent and on their own. And so I think there's a responsibility that comes from the larger church in terms of equipping and helping these guys. Um, I think for the guy, the guy on the ground, um, for, for us, when Sarah and her brother moved in, uh, how long ago was that now? Maybe 10 years ago. Um, they took massive hits in the first year in terms of struggling to gain trust from the community. Windows going through. Windows going through, called pedophiles because they were trying to do youth mm-hmm. work. And so um, I think having a, a long-term attitude, knowing that this is going to take time. Mm-hmm. And I think knowing that in some ways more important than having a having a team from the beginning is going to be having trust and acceptance from the community because we could have come in as a team without Sarah and Andrew's investment of eight or nine years before we got there mm-hmm. and the team wouldn't have been accepted. So Sarah and her brother were laboring largely on yeah. their own with a mm-hmm. few volunteers for six, seven, eight years. But actually the, the investment that they made battling on their own has made it possible for our team. So even now when we, people join our church, they largely write off the reputation of what Sarah and her brother slogged away for for six, seven, eight years. And so it, it's not wasted time when you're battling on your own as an individual. And so the um, the trust and the, the kind of acceptance from the community that if you are with this person who's been here for a long time, then you've got a buy-in and a kind of something that you you can't create overnight or by a team. So I'd say even the cultural insiders who have come in to help us are still riding off the back of Sarah and Andrew's kind of mm-hmm. graft, moving into the community, becoming part of the community. But you would say, even even so, they're instinctively culturally more evangelistic, not, not, maybe not more evangelistic, but more in tune with connecting with local people. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of the cultural insiders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah completely. Yeah. In terms of understanding of what is acceptable, what's not, and yeah, what's normal and what's not. And yeah. yeah, which I've had to learn. And far more likely to embrace chaos. Yeah. And be yeah. chaotic. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the struggles for me have been everything in me that's frustrated you. Yeah. Because we've, like, we've had our tensions as well, and that's largely been because I have been... Uh, slow to understand the usefulness of stopping and chilling out and 
investing time. Yeah, you hate chilling out. That's a waste of time to you, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's... Yeah, again, from kind of... Is that the agendered lifestyle? Of... Yeah, I think largely. In terms of creating space just to invest relationally, have the banter, create a culture and a community that's genuine and deep. And yeah. for me, it, f- it feels like, yeah, waste of time. Yeah. But it's not. No. Or it feels like time that, how can I be just hanging out with these boys when I don't even have this time to invest in my you know, family? Times, yeah, you know exactly. I mean? It's seen, um, hanging out with the boys down a club, not as ministry, but in a ministry capacity. Yeah. Uh, it's, le- it's no less biblical or holy than prepping the Bible study for the Wednesday night. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's spade work. And that, and that feels odd, particularly when you're coming from a culture that says it trains you this way. You then go into a program church yeah. where you're, you're constantly getting ready for something, prepping something, teaching someone. And now you're going to come and plant a church where 90% of your first few years is you just sitting around, shooting the breeze, looking like you're doing nothing. Yeah. And, you've, and you're just like feeling guilty. Yeah. And this is oh, I could be helping her. She's got the kid, the kids, you know what I mean? But yeah. here I am just... Yeah. Laughing about. Just a cultural thing. You said hanging out down the club. For maybe people who would not know what a club is. Oh, you hanging out. Well, if for us, like we got like a working man's club, which is just sort of like the old miners' clubs where the old miners used to go for a drink, play some pool. As opposed to going clubbing. Oh yeah, as opposed to a night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not oh, yeah, not doing the old nightclub thing. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, whatever. You know what I mean, though, right? Yeah. Um, Right, you just put me right off there, John, so now I forgot. I'm actually going to draw it to a close because I've got to go and have a meeting. But So I've got one question, and it's a big one to end on. I mean, you don't have to have the answer, but and it's a leading question as well. You know, current systems of theological training and education aren't working hmm. for us, are they? I mean, they're working for a particular demographic of the population. They're, tr- yeah. they're turning out guys who can obviously preach a sermon, right? Um, but... I don't know about Oak Hill. Yeah, I, I, you know, I know quite a good few lads who've gone there. Yeah, yeah. it's a good um, school. I myself benefited years and years ago from listening to some Dick Lucas lectures. Yeah, I'm going to bit see, see and so I, I'm not denigrating yeah, yeah. that. But there is a particular cultural individual. Yeah, um, who pays for, who can pay for, get finance to go to, has uh, to go to seminary has cachet in the Christian community that our, our guys don't have yeah. um, and a particular a particular emphasis on higher education mm. being a far superior model to vocational education in terms of preparing men and women for for, for, for leadership in the for leadership in the church and when I mean leadership in terms of women I, I don't mean eldership yeah um, and so What's your view on that? Because I'm not denigrating theological education. We need oh, people need to go and train, and those things are contextually good for people. But uh, what's your view? Having spent some time around us now and us trying to train, you've you, you've taught a lot of our guys mm. um, and stuff. You, you know, we're we're thinking of this new ragged school of theology. It's called. I love it. Yeah. Although a lot, you're the only you're the first middle class guy who's liked it. And I was talking to I won't say who it is. Jonathan Stevens from John Stevens from FIC, but um, he said, um, "Are you set on the name?" I said, "Well, you've got two choices. I, I was set on the aggressive school of theology, <laughs> so you can have the aggressive or you can have ragged." He goes, "No, I, I think like it's quite, <laughs> quite good now." But so we're, we're trying to develop this vocational theological school. Um, you know, is it something new? No, it's not new. But one, particularly with me and Ian Williamson and, and others, we're hoping you know. In the future, obviously, children and all that get funds and, and others on board. That that there will be distinctive working class voices teaching yeah. these people, as well as you know middle class guys. Uh, what do you think? You think that's a good idea? You you think I'm wrong? You hmm. think we're over egging the pudding because someone said to me, "I think you're exaggerating saying the current theological systems aren't working because it's producing pastors." Can you see what our point? Or yeah, I think the the point is 
a lot of the theological institutions in the UK are producing pastors, but they're producing pastors for particular contexts yeah. and from particular backgrounds. Yeah. And so I think I think Oak Hill was massively invaluable for me and I think it was right for me at that time. And I think... Um, There's some geezers in Oak Hill, Yeah, right? man. And so the foundation it gave me hugely indebted to the likes of Mike Ovey, Chris Green, Charles Anderson, and these guys who taught me Who's the really lassie? Well. What's the lassie's name? With Mel Lacey. She's who's great. Class. She's been very helpful yeah. to us. Dan Strange. It's absolutely I met him first once. class. Um, and so I, I think it's a great school. I think it's doing good stuff. But it's unlikely to cater from guys who are grown up, converted, and discipled in Gracement. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be the right setting. And so I think it's taken the same content the same truths and teaching it for our guys and I think what we're not saying is working class equals stupid and middle class equals intellectual Uh, and we need to be careful about that because there is a lie that says working class people don't read yeah you sort of intimated it when you said should I be giving them books you weren't saying that I understand what you were saying yeah but in Nidri I can get more working class guys to read than I can get middle class yeah what, is your experience different to mine, or um, it may well be? I would, uh, I would say, I would say, yeah, it's not. I wouldn't say I've seen much of a difference in middle class people reading or working class yeah. people. Reading. I think there's a there's, guys there's read diversity right? in both. Yeah, but guys from the community will will read stuff that I give them. But I think it, my point was just presuming that the way I learn, yeah, yeah, the way you've been teach taught to learn, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's going to be the same for them. And uh, what we mustn't lose is any of the sense of rigor and depth and um, the importance of doing all the breadth of theological study, but how we deliver that in a way that is accessible to people who aren't coming from the same privilege in terms of money or background or um, qualifications from school or whatever, I think is absolutely vital. Can a guy from a council estate, because you know, I'm going to show up now, I've got two degrees, right? Yeah. Because uh, I was forced to go through the system 20 years ago. There wasn't this conversation. Yeah. I was just a freak. Yeah. Wheeled out for testimonies. I had to go through. But can a guy like me from my background, completely unchurched, completely off the streets, get converted, can he become a pastor without any formal theological education? He should be able to. And I would say at the UK at the moment, it would be very hard for him to. No, As you I'll know. tell you what, in the US it's impossible because you can't be a pastor without a minimum of a master's. Yeah. 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 Supremely impossible. But we're not, but, but there seems to be, doesn't there, a particular, particularly in our circles, theologically conservative, artistic, reformed, that sort of the, the thing, the elevation is a theological degree. Yeah. Equips you for ministry. Or certainly without that, yeah. Can you really be an effective pastor? Yeah. The other issue is you have, even if you've got a guy like you that comes through those systems, they often then don't come back yeah, yeah. to our context. There's a kind of up and out type thing. Yeah, so I was at a conference at the start of the year and asked how many people in the room were born, raised in a working class context. And there was probably about 25 hands, room of two, 300 people. When I asked the question, how many of you are still in a working class background? And there was one hand that stayed up. Yeah. Which shows that even though there, there are people within the Christian circles who have grown up in a working class context, hardly any of them stay. Yeah, one of the things we want to do with our training is make sure that people can do it. It's accessible, but they stay in, in context to do yeah. it. I, I, I just, you know, don't see this thing of go, go away for three years, out of context, yeah. leave and then come back. Yeah. Right, Bud, thank you very much. Thanks, this is, I don't know, when this, when's this going out, John? August. So let's see if you're a prophet. England or Croatia tonight? Um, if England won the World Cup. No, but England or Croatia tonight first? I think England won tonight. And then England, France final? Yeah, France won. Okay, you heard it here first. When if this England, goes out. If England won, I'll get a photo of you tattooed on my backside. Okay, and. Okay. You'll get a photo of me tattooed on your backside if England win. Yeah. You know. Oh. <laughs> Here's the thing, because I'm Irish, and we need to know this, and this will be out afterwards. I England. <laughs> <laughs>
I won't get pumped. But here's the thing. I think they'll beat Croatia. Yeah, I don't know. And then when they get to France, Thierry Henry put us out of the World Cup. Remember yeah. that? Mm-hmm. That little handball. Yeah. So it's left me in a quandary. You know, do I support the old cheating Frenchies? Oh, be on- Henry's been in the Belgian squad this year. Yeah, so. or do I support... Yeah, but he's still France. And he took <laughs> us out. Do I support the English? Yeah. So obviously I have to support France. Oh, <laughs> but um, so we'll see. So you're going to... This is on camera. He will get a... They're not going to win it. But it's part of me now wants them to win. No, they won't Just win. for that. No. My <sighs> wife wouldn't let me do that. Imagine that every morning, seeing your face on my backside. <laughs> <laughs> it's on camera, but <laughs> you're not a man of your words. No, nah, not always. Good lad. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Cheers, pal. All right. Thanks, boys.